Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Turkey. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, Dr. Evo Vandergraaf joins the show again. On August 15th, 2021, Dr. Vandergraaf joined the show and we had a conversation that explored what scholars know about Pompeii in the 6th century BCE. Today, we're going to speak about that ancient city in the 5th and 4th centuries BCE. So we're going to speak about and explore what scholars know about Pompeii in the 400s and 300s BCE. Dr. Vandergraaf is a Dutch art historian and archaeologist. He is Associate Professor of Art History at the University of New Hampshire, Durham, based in the U.S. He's been working on archaeological projects and publishing for 20 years, 15 of which have been at Pompeii. He's Field Director at the Oplantis Project, and he's author of the monograph, The Fortifications of Pompeii and Ancient Italy, which was published by Routledge. And Dr. Vandergraaf joins the show today from the state of New Hampshire in the U.S. Welcome back on the show, Evo. Hi, good to see you, uh, Andrew. Good to connect with you, as always, Evo. So when we planned out the last conversation, which was on Pompeii in the 6th century, we wanted to find a place to start in that chronology where there was enough evidence in the records to have a constructive conversation that would last anywhere from 30 minutes to 55 minutes in length. And you had suggested the 6th century BCE as a place where we could start. And we had that conversation. And that's complete. For this conversation, we we agreed that we wanted to find a, a spot that made sense chronologically for the next for the next conversation, which we're having right now. And you made the suggestion that in this conversation we cover two centuries, not one. So you made the suggestion that we cover the fifth and fourth centuries. Why did you make that suggestion? Well, the the problem with the the with the the problem really comes down to uh, the fact that for the fifth century we have very little evidence at Pompeii. Um, and it was my opinion that uh, focusing only on the 5th century would have not, we would, would not have had enough material to talk about. And that is primarily because what happens at Pompeii is in the 5th century, we see that that moment in the 6th century where Pompeii had started develop, to develop kind of fades away. And in the 5th century, we get a moment in time when Pompeii seems to contract and a large part of the population seems to disappear. And archeologically speaking, what we get is there are large parts of the city where archeologists have recovered a, a stratum, a sort of uniform stratum of uh, abandonment slash, they think alluvial uh, deposit, which uh, suggests that Pompeii uh, experienced some sort of catastrophe, maybe landslides of some sort, or a long period of abandonment. Um, not that the entire city was, was uh, abandoned completely, but the large plateau itself in which Pompeii was developing seems to experience a large population loss. And for that reason, we don't have much in terms of development for the city to talk about. That's why I decided, or I suggested, that we focus on the fifth and the fourth century, because in the fourth century, we start to see Pompeii come back onto the scene, and we start to see a new development of the city happening. Do scholars believe there was any habitation in the fifth 
century, I get the sense there's not much evidence for development. Do scholars believe there was absolutely no, no habitation either in the fifth century? No, it looks it looks that there actually is some habitation, and the one of the theories then goes back to the, our previous conversation where we have that that um, situation in the urban layout of the city where we have the sort of old core, the Altstadt we talked about, and then we have the Neustadt, which is sort of the the entire plateau. And the Altstadt, if you remember, is that area in the south western corner of the city where we have sort of an irregular layout of the streets. One of the main theories here is that the urban area sort of contracts into the Altstadt. And here we're, we're talking about a debate that has been going on among scholars for about 200 years. It looks like in that Altstadt then, we have some sort of very, very light occupation. There have been some sort of, there have been some uh, excavations here. They found uh, what looks like um, parts of houses, but these houses are very small. They seem to have some agriculture in the immediate area. Uh, many parts of the city, as I said, seem abandoned. Uh, the sanctuaries uh, see an abrupt end of frequentation. So places like the Temple of Apollo, there is around 475, all of a sudden an abandonment. We don't have any more evidence for votive deposits. So it looks like there is some sort of habitation still there, but it becomes very, very reduced. And one of the arguments then is that the, the, the Altstadt itself receives a, some sort of fortification, traces of which have been found, uh, uh, whereas now, nowadays the, the house of the, uh, of the Pastumi along the uh, Via de la Bondanza, where uh, archaeologists seem to have found traces of a ditch. Uh, and for, which might be associated with a defensive fortification. The exact date of that is controversial, but what we have then is is this regression, and it it's it follows essentially right after the the end of the sixth century when a new fortification goes up around the city. Remember, there is that first fortification we talked about, the the Papamonte uh, fortification, which envelops the whole city. And towards the end of the 6th century, the beginning of the 5th, we have a new fortification going up, which seems to follow the old circuit and has a Greek construction technique uh, associated, associated with it. It's known as the orthostat fortification because it's composed primarily of orthostats. Um, and right after the construction of that fortification, within a few decades, we get this, this regression event. Uh, which scholars associate with um, historical events. And the archaeology shows that the area around Pompeii also sees a, a heavy decline in the population. And the, the landscape itself seems to have fewer smaller settlements. About. When does repopulation begin? It seems to be associated with the fact that Pompeii enters the Roman orbit. Uh, and that is right around, uh, we have Livy tell us um, that during the Second Samnite War, a group of Roman allies lands near Pompeii. And this is 
perhaps the earliest we have evidence for Pompeii actually being in the historical record. And what happens is that group of, of, of raiders, if you want to put it that way, heads to the next town over. Um, that is the town of uh, Nocera, which is one of the bigger cities inland. Uh, they raid it, they are, and they bypass Pompeii, which suggests that either Pompeii is still very much non-existent or that it has rebuilt its fortifications and that they bypassed the stronghold to head to Nocera. And then, and then um, Livy tells us that the peasants in the area, as the troops are on their way back to the ships, are attack these troops, these raiders, and take part of their booty. And they sort of retreat back in disarray to their ships. But Pompeii here is specifically mentioned as being a port city for Nocera. And we know that then Pompeii enters the Roman orbit as a allied city right about that time. And it seems that it is around that time that we start to get a new emphasis on Pompeii. And this is towards the end of the fourth century. And, the, and it coincides in large part, once again, with the construction of a new fortification, uh, one that is largely the basis for the one you see around the city today. So by the end of the fourth century, scholars are confident that there was a repopulation process occurring at Pompeii. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's pretty dramatic um, in terms of how quickly that goes. So between the mid-5th century and mid-4th century, we have very little happening at Pompeii, as I said. And again, part of this has to do, at least scholars have suggested, with the political developments at the time. So if we go back and look at uh, Strabo, who writes um, about Pompeii, he describes Pompeii, the, the people living at Pompeii, uh, at first as uh, the Oski, then the Tyrrheni, then the Pelasgi, and then the Samnites. Translated, the Oski, he means the local population, the Tyrrheni means the Etruscans, the Pelasgi, he associates with the Greeks, and then we get the Samnites. And the Samnites here then are, are the key. So historically what happens is that right around in 474 BCE, we have the Battle of Cumae, which is just across the Bay of Naples. And here we have uh, an Etruscan fleet that is defeated by the navy of Syracuse, the Greek city of Syracuse. That's a combined fleet of Etruscans and, and Carthaginians that are defeated by Syracuse. This essentially seems to put a stop to the Etruscan sphere of influence, which seems to be moving further south at the time. And it suggests then perhaps that the construction of that, that last fortification, that orthostat fortification, is related to this, this expansion of the Etruscans, or, or so it has been said. Right after this, what we get is that the, the Samnite tribes of the mount, from the mountains, so from the hinterland, come down from the mountains and enter the Campanian plain. And we know, for instance, from Diodorus Siculus, that places like Capua and Cumae, which are just north of Pompeii, on, sort of just on the other side of the Bay of Naples, further inland, are conquered by the Samnites 
uh, in this period. And it seems then that Pompeii is, is part of this conquest where the Samnites essentially take over Pompeii. And this seems to coincide with this period of urban regression at Pompeii. Some people have also argued that that orthostat fortification I talked about earlier is a reaction to the threat posed to the Samnites. Unfortunately, the dates there are a bit too fluid to, to nail that down precisely. But it seems then that you have this period of semi-abandonment. And then when Pompeii enters the Roman orbit, we see then this urban expansion happening once more. The uh, sanctuaries are reactivated. The Doric temple, for instance, the one dedicated to Minerva, receives a new roof. There is a new fortification that goes up around the city. And perhaps more importantly, the city receives a new sort of grid layout following by and large the street layout that was there before. But we get this expansion once more from that core of the Alstad out into the plateau of the city. If the Samnites inhabited, predominantly inhabited Pompeii at some point in this period, when, when do you b believe that approximately began? Well, it, as I said, it, it, it looks like there is a pop, there there is a, a constant population of Pompeii. There is a continuous occupation. It just seems that at the end of the fourth century, and this is really the, the beginning of the period that we call the Samnite period of Pompeii, which runs all the way up to um, essentially 80 BCE, when Sulla finally conquers the city uh, during the social wars and then installs a colony there and the city becomes a Roman colony. So that period from essentially the mid fifth century BC up to the early first century BC is known as Samnite Pompeii because the people then are speaking Oscan. They have Oscan inscriptions, they have Oscan burial rites. We have a few funerary contexts which seem to follow Etruscan, uh, not sorry, not Etruscan, but uh, uh, Samnite, um, uh, traditions where we have burials where people are buried in sort of a stone lined coffin of sorts with um, some some burial um, goods in terms of local pottery imitating Greek styles. Uh, and this is the period then that Pompeii will tap into the expanding influence of Rome in the Mediterranean. We know that um, later on in the second century, Pompeii will participate in the wars in the east, and that essentially large amounts of wealth will pour in. But that's something that happens really in the third and the second centuries. It's at the end of the fourth that we see that populations start to expand. We see those that area of Pompeii start to expand back out again. And as I said, it is accompanied by some major public works, uh, including the layout, the new grid layout of the city, the construction of the fortifications, which at this point then are, again, 3.2 kilometers long, but they are massive. We have a very large earthen mound kind of fortification known as an agar fortification, where on the front of the earthen, um, earthen mound then we have a sheathing of earth, of uh, ashlar masonry composed of limestone and tufa superimposed on each other. 
Within the city, we see then at the old forum, we see uh, some shops starting to pop up. There is a small sort of banquet hall that uh, emerges as well right at the fringes of the Altstadt in sort of the north eastern corner of the Altstadt. So it seems that all of a sudden there's a new impetus to really start to, to expand Pompeii back out. And that starts in the last quarter of the, of the fourth century BC. You've mentioned the term or something similar to orbit of Roman influence a couple times. Was that, are you referencing that term? Are you associating that term to this, this period? And can you expand on what you mean by that term? Well, it seems that Pompeii becomes a, a civitas federata, so a, a allied city to Rome. And it is at this point in time then that we also see the, the, the city next door, Nocera, ancient Nuceria, also starts to build, it seems, a, a large fortification system. So the question then is, how does a, a city that is like Pompeii that has experienced essentially a long period with very little population, all of a sudden muster the resources to be able to build such a large fortification and then associated with that fortification also lay out the streets, the, the grid layout of the city that then Pompeii will grow into for the next few centuries. That's sort of the idea here that the, the grid the city is laid out and then Pompeii sort of progressively occupies that plateau as it builds it back out into the plateau of the city. So the question then is, is how, where do those resources come from? How is the community, how can a community like Pompeii afford that? And it seems then that the natural answer would be, well, uh, having an ally like Rome, Rome might have in its interests to build out or to protect or help Pompeii protect. Now, we don't have any tang real tangible evidence of this in any sort of form of writing or epigraphy. But what is interesting is if we look at the religious sanctuaries, and in particular, we see this revival of this, the, the sanctuaries. Remember, as, as I said, we have the abrupt end of the religious votive de deposits at the Temple of Apollo. The same of happens at the Temple of Athena, Minerva. Remember the one at the dark, uh, at the edge of the dark uh, of the triangular form. And what happens then? So at the same time that we have the construction of this massive fortification wall uh, and the layout of this orthogonal plan, uh, which I should say, seems to follow Roman rules of layout, sort of Roman survey rules. At the temple of Athena, we get the, the, the revitalization of the cult as the building then receives a makeover. Uh, we have a new roof goes up and the metopes that are carved in some uh, for this temple, are sort of a carved area in ornamental part in a Doric order style temple, show images of a cult associated with Minerva. At this point, we're switching from Athena to Minerva because we're entering the Roman sphere of, of orbit. 
and, and Hercules, right? They, they are paired together in this new cult. And this, the idea then is, or we know that this cult becomes popular as Rome starts to expand further south. So it seems that this cult is associated with this Roman expansion towards the south. We know, for instance, that uh, Poseidonia, Paestum Poseidonia, is conquered in 274 BCE, and a, a Roman colony is installed there. That's the city that's next in line down from Pompeii to the south. And this cult then makes an appearance along the, so at Pompeii, then we know it appears at Stabiae, which is just across the bay to the south from Pompeii. There's another sanctuary that appears with the same cult. There's another one at the tip, at the very tip of the Sorrento Peninsula. And then this cult also appears at Paestum. And it, it seems then that this cult is, is associated with the Roman expansion. Now, some scholars like to see it as being a last sort of gasp of a league of Samnite, sort of Samnite cities at this point. Um, against Roman expansion, and this cult is associated with that. Some people like to see it as a clearly Roman introduction uh, associated with this Roman uh, movement south. And we know also that many of these sanctuaries are closely interrelated because some of the molds that were used for the uh, terracotta decorations at the new sanctuary at Pompeii, the redeveloped sanctuary at Pompeii, were used also for, for other sanctuaries, for instance, the one at Stabia across the bay. So it looks like it's a coordinated introduction of this cult, which then poses all sorts of interesting questions as to how religion is used to justify uh, expansion. If someone was looking down at Pompeii, in the last part, the later part of the fourth century, where it sounds like a lot of the development you're describing occurred. And if time was moving really fast, <laughs> is, it, is an interesting kind of exercise, especially if we're doing it in, in, in orally, right? But, but so, yeah. so, so, um, so to visualize, right? If someone was looking down, let's say they're 100, you know, 200 meters above Pompeii, it's the later period, time's moving really fast. From an urban planning context, can you describe what would have been occurring? And obviously, this is uh, summarizing is perfectly fine because we're, we're talking probably at least 25 years here. But what's occurring in Pompeii, if you're to summarize that in this, in this period of time? Yeah, so, so the picture that you can sort of put in your mind at this point is then at least this sort of how I view it, is that we have this, this, uh, this urban relic, if you want to put it that way, if you want to even argue it as being an urban relic. But we have this core around the Altstadt, the old city. Now, it looks like the plateau might have had a, a few other places where we have some habitation, but it's very, it's very patchy. Uh, it looks like the many of the old buildings of the 6th century had been abandoned for some while, for some time. And th the main 
some of the main roads were largely still in place. So if you remember, I, I said last time there is that main street heading roughly north-south of Via Stabiana, um, which follows sort of the contours of the city. That was probably still in place. And that seems to be one of the main orienting axes for what happens. And we have this massive planning of the main streets of Pompeii. So the main east-west axes, the Via della Bondanza, for instance, and the main uh, north-south axes. This would have been a major planning event. And it looks like then that the old, many of the old buildings have been demolished. It looks like there is maybe some sort of limited agriculture happening. And all of a sudden then the, the city is laid out according to these plots of land, these parcels, upon which then in the next few centuries, the city will develop. We also get new, a couple of new public works. We have a few public wells going in at this moment in time, um, which suggests then that we have population expansion happening. Remember the fifth century, also around Pompeii, we see the landscape itself depopulate. Outside of Pompeii, along the main axes, it looks like we have also this this parceling out of the land, what we call also centuriation. So we, we have um, specific plots of land that are laid out, which are then given over to, to owners. A large project, this is part of this public works that's going on, where we have the, the temples, we have the shops going up, we have the, the grid layout happening, and then we have the construction of the fortification. Now, the fortification itself helps to anchor the grid, and you could see it going both ways. The fortification has the sort of predetermines the access points, right? The, the city gates. And we know that one of the old openings seems to be closed off at the end of the Via del Foro uh, in, on the north side of the city. But the other city gates that were in place before that in the old circuits seem to have a continuity, right? So that implies that part of this grid follows in continuity from the sixth century. It's not entirely forgotten. And then along the smaller streets of this new fortification, we get, later on, we get the, the development of fortified towers. So that suggests that maybe we had smaller openings along these lesser streets that obey this new grid layout. But the fortification itself, you're talking about a massive project. You're talking about a project that has to cover at least about 3.2 kilometers in length. You then have to raise up a, an earthen mound, which is about nine meters high. The earthen mound itself is probably is roughly about 30 meters in width in total. It sort of slopes down. You imagine it sort of being like a, like a curve coming down. And then on the front of it, you have to have 
or builders will, will erect a an ashlar wall, which is quarry, right? We have about six to nine courses of a limestone uh, ashlar facing. And on top of that, we have another nine or 10 courses of uh, tough stone, which is sort of a, a gray stone. And that all needs to be quarried from around Pompeii. We know that limestone, for instance, has to be carted from uh, areas to along the river. So you have to have that kind of organization. The, the tough stone seems to come from quarries close to the next town over from Nochera. So you have to have that kind of manpower in place, the kind of organization in place to build that massive structure. So again, it's, it's, the evidence is very patchy, but there is all of a sudden this, this huge building activity. And we start to see the development of new houses. A few new houses seem to pop up. The earliest maybe the house of the scientists, the house of the surgeons seem to be built right around this time. And they seem to be built out of this limestone. Um, Pompeii, Pompeian scholars have divided up famously the history of Pompeii largely along the mater construction materials used. And perhaps that's a conversation we can have in, in another question. Um, but that's what you're seeing, right? If you're looking from, from, about, from a bird's eye view, you see all this construction activity happening around these ma this major monument. Uh, we have around the forum, we have, as I said, evidence for new shops going up. So there, there's a fervent activity uh, going on at the time. The word materials is on the note in front of me, evil. I'm planning on asking a question or two maybe three around, around that coming up. And you did an excellent job handling that really, really big, big question with the response there. How many people approximately do you believe or know would have lived in Pompeii by the later part of the fourth century? That is a, a very interesting question and I don't think we can have a definitive answer for that. Um, the archeology, span we just don't know enough of this period, the, the, the inquiry into this period, the excavations haven't reached a definitive conclusion yet. But it looks, so as I said, from the evidence that we have, it looks like that we, the fifth century and the first half of the fourth century, we have very little population. And then in the fourth, the end of the fourth century, we have this expansion happening. And the this Regio 6, which is the region just north of the Forum, that's where we see some activity happening in terms of the construction of, of houses. We also have, as I said, a archaeologists have recovered what seems to be a banquet hall. So that suggests that there is an elite in the city, and that banquet hall seems to be a public banquet hall where dignitaries from elsewhere or from around the surrounding territory would have been would have been invited to to eat we also have then those shops popping up at the forum which point to renewed economic activity it looks like in the fourth century generally speaking around in, in this 
area of Italy, we get a new, um, more evidence of population coming back into the countryside. We get more, more evidence for farms, for smaller settlements. So it looks like there is a, a, a wider sort of population gain that happens in this period. And it certainly must have affected Pompeii. But I'm not sure that we can pinpoint an exact number at this point because everything is so, the evidence seems to be so patchy. But it does seem that we have a, a sort of a stratification happening and a more sort of a hierarchical layout of Pompeii. And Pompeii then fits into this orbit of Samnite sphere of influence. So. Also, in this period, then, we previously in the fifth century, we have what's known as the typical Samnite uh, settlement pattern, which is very patchy. There are few people in the landscape. Pompeii is, is not very inhabited. And then it in, 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 looks like in, in the fourth century, you also get a, a group of cities known as the, the Nucerian League, where we have a series of cities under um, we have Nocera, probably Pompeii, we have Stabia, we have probably Sorrento as well, ancient Sorrento, which are in this umbrella, this group of, of cities that are loosely federated. They have a magistrate known as a medic, medic, medic Tuticus, who's the head magistrate, and they seem to form kind of this group, a political group. And Pompeii seems to be part of that. So, and that political group then seems to be part of this population expansion. But again, for Pompeii and also for these other cities, it's very difficult to pinpoint ex exact numbers at this point. You'll probably prefer me not asking this question, Evil. But if you were a, a, a betting person, would you would you would you guess the the population was in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? Or, or, or more? Uh, probably less. We'd probably be looking at 1,000, 2,000, probably less than 5,000 for sure. I mean, Pompeii, the estimates, even at the time of the eruption in 79, are very controversial. There are very different ways of, of approaching it. But a general consensus has emerged that roughly Pompeii would have had at the time of the eruption maybe 10,000 or 15,000 in population. So if we're looking at, a, at, at Pompeii at the end of the fourth century and all of this work is starting to happen and the city is starting to redevelop, we must be looking at a, at a population that is significantly less than that. Um, and Again, it must have been probably less than 5,000. That's my, my betting. Okay, okay. So how did um, materials that were used for, let's say, let's say roads, so we'll treat this in two parts, roads and buildings. Can you describe what the, and some of this had come up previously, but I wanna, I wanna frame this a certain way, this question. Um, how, how did the development of roads and buildings change, if anything, in the period we're speaking about today versus the previous period, which would have been the, the sixth century that we had spoken about last time? 
That is an excellent question. And um, let me divide it up into, into two parts. So let's, let's focus on the roads for a second. Um, the evidence for the roads uh, suggests that those that are going in at this moment in time are made out of uh, beaten earth or a beaten earth mixed with uh, pebbles, that sort of thing. So very kind of rough pavement, not, not the kind of flagstones that you see nowadays, which, which seem to be later um, when they are built. Uh, the archaeological evidence that suggests then that the roads at this moment in time are made roughly out of beaten earth, which is very typical. And if done correctly, they, they are very sturdy. And in, in that sense, I don't think that that technique changes much from the sixth century. But what we have in terms of construction then, uh, if you remember in the sixth century, a lot of the construction that was going on was, was uh, foundation walls uh, made out of this very friable tough stone known as Papamonte. And then on top of that, the walls would have been built up with uh, either mud brick or beaten earth or combination thereof or uh, waddle and daub techniques, the stuff that doesn't survive in the archaeological record. That changes in the fourth century. And we see the introduction of um, large, large scale introduction of uh, ashlar masonry. And with that, I mean a stone masonry uh, made out of regular sized blocks. Uh, and in fact, if you take even a peek at the at the fortification wall nowadays, you'll see that the, the facade of it, as I said, is made out of these stone blocks. The lower course is a limestone or local travertine, and the upper course is made out of out of tough stone. This is a dramatic shift. That doesn't mean that the old ways of the sixth century entirely disappear. In fact, we know that there are some found, a few foundation walls that have been found for the fifth century, and also for later where that technique was still used. It's, it's cheap stone construction is a lot more expensive to do. So it, it doesn't mean that those old ways disappear entirely. They're, they're probably still used, especially for, for people who can't afford the kind of stone used in the new structures. But the large scale use of stone suggests then that we're getting at a point when we have new uh, construction techniques, for sure. We have better tools. We have better organization. We have um, people who can afford this kind of construction, which is the important part here. You can build a house with the facade made out of limestone or tra travertine blocks. And travertine is a locally sourced material, which um, is abundant in the uh, valley of the river Sarno because it precipitates from the volcanic waters that are in the springs, the hot springs that are in the mountains, the, the Apennine Mountains, and it comes down the river valley and it precipitates in these large banks. It forms rather quickly and that can be quarry. It's, it's relatively soft, but you, and you can, quarry it into sort of rough shapes, like a, a rough block of sorts. But it doesn't lend itself to carving in the way that, say, marble does, where you can, it's kind of rough. So you, it's, it's difficult to carve statues or, or things like that from it. But it lends itself very well to building. And we see then that it's 
And this is what in the past uh, scholars used to say was the limestone period at Pompeii. And I should make the disambiguation here. It's not really limestone, it's travertine that we're talking about, which is slightly different from limestone, but it's in the same sort of family. And then scholars used to say that following the limestone period, then all of a sudden we get the introduction of this other construction material known as tuff or tufa, uh, which was quarried. Uh, again, the quarry here, the quarries have not been entirely found, but could be quarried on the, the plateau of Pompeii itself. Or it was quarried, we think, from a place like Nocera, which is just down the, the road uh, from Pompeii, or from the uh, Sorrento Peninsula and then shipped in by ship uh, up to through the river at Pompeii. Now, that distinction between periods associated with these materials seems to be a little bit blurry than that. And in fact, I argue that the construction of the fortification was such that it employed both materials. To tough stone itself seems to be a little bit more of a prestige material, and it seems to be employed a more heavily a little bit further down the line. But it's a prestige material because we find it then also on the facades of later houses, and this we're entering the third and the second century, so I won't dwell on it too much. But it's, it's used as a display material, right? It can be carved, and you can uh, carve columns out of it, column drums, you can carve uh, lintels, moldings, column capitals out of it, you can carve the lining of the impluvia, uh, for instance, where the water is collected in, in Pompeian houses. And it's used very judiciously by the owners. But again, it's, it seems then, logically speaking, that the use of stone is associated with the, with the people in the monument, with the people who can afford it. And it's used also in the monuments. So for instance, the, 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 the temple to Minerva, dark temple, is built out of this travertine. But it's used as a durable substitute. And because you need to quarry it, you need the workmen, you need the organization to dress the stone, to, to quarry it, bring it on site, dress it, put it into place, um, and so forth that it is more of a prestige, uh, prestige material than, say, building the old way, which is the, the, the foundation with the mud brick on top. But as I said, it doesn't mean that the old ways disappear. It seems that these construction techniques live together. Before we wrap up the conversation today, Ivo, is there something that we haven't touched on that you want to make sure gets in this episode today or is there something that we did touch on that you want to emphasize before we wrap up? Um, I think we covered most of the bases at this point. Um, we covered the, the orthogonal layout of the city. We covered the, the new buildings going up. We covered the development of domestic spaces. One thing I might want to add is about the, the grid layout of the city. Um, there has been some talk about its orientation and the importance of its orientation. One group or one set of scholars, largely led by uh, Stefano De Caro, who, who's one of sort of laid out um, 
in large part how this grid was was laid out seems to suggest that this grid follows some points in the landscape. And one of them then uh, is being um, the Via the, the Nala on the, on the north side of the city, which seems to be aligned with, or he suggests, with a sanctuary uh, in the Apennine Mountains. This sanctuary seems to be then uh, the origin or the source of the Sarno River, and seems to be then connected also with a Samnite goddess, the goddess Mephitis. That goddess uh, seems to be also, seems to find, and this is one of the, the sanctuaries I should have talked about earlier on, seems to find a place in Pompeii as well. So the later site of the Temple of Venus, which is, which seems to be built uh, under uh, or just after the colonization of Pompeii. This is a little bit controversial, but um, under, under Sulla, that site seems to be the, the, the area where we have a new cult to this goddess, Nephetis. Uh, it seems that um, the orientation of the neighboring town of Nocera follows that same rule, or at least according to Decado, where it's, it's oriented, its grid layout is oriented towards this sanctuary in the landscape. So he sort of or argues for a broader sort of sacred connection that sort of covers the landscape in and of itself. And if you remember what I said, much of the landscape seems to be reorganized at this period as well along these main uh, inter or regional roads, if you want to put it that way. Another idea is that the uh, orientation of the grid of Pompeii, as I said earlier, seems to follow uh, what Roman surveyors would do. So we know from texts that Roman, the Agrimensores, as they're called, would orient their grids or try to orient their grids according to the movement of the sun. It's an easy way to sort of pinpoint where you are, right? Uh, where the, 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 where east is and west is and north and south and so forth. And it seems then, the other argument then is that the grid layout follows this practice of the Roman surveyors that it follows essentially the um, orientation of the sun. And recently that has been tied even more to the, uh, the equinox. So the summer uh, equinox. And essentially what we have, no, not the summer equinox, sorry, the, the summer solstice, the, the spring equinox, where now uh, we actually have groups of people gathering uh, along uh, the Via di Nola, um, at the intersection with the, the Via del Foro. And they gather there to watch, to witness the sunrise uh, from the mountains to the east in alignment with the sun of, uh, of the street that they are, that they are, are on. Now, again, this is 
to a certain extent, a little bit difficult to pinpoint with more certainty. But I just wanted to make sure that that was also said, that there, that there seems to be, that there are people who associate much, much more meaning to the grid layout that is put in the city at the end of the fourth century BC. Okay. You covered a lot of material in a reasonably short period of time again, Evo. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Vandergraaf wrote, he's author of The Fortifications of Pompeii and Ancient Italy. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Evo and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.